When will these things be? We're going to talk, begin to talk, begin to talk. This is a huge subject. and It's necessitated some flexibility on where I'm going with these things. So uh, we're going to begin to talk this morning about the second coming of Jesus. Also on Wednesday night, we're looking at what in the world is going on. We're looking into the prophetic words. We're going to be doing that for a few weeks, both Sunday and Wednesday. So this morning, we're going to look at, begin to look at the second coming of Jesus. So in verse Mark 13 and verse uh, 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us to Jesus, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus, answering them, began to say, take heed that no one deceives you. Now, look at verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, which is the great tribulation, we briefly touched on that. We'll be touching on these things several times. It says, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then you will see, then they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So Lord, we ask your blessing over your word, we're thankful for the word of God. Living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word is a lamp and a light to direct us and show us. And please, I pray this morning, you would help me, Lord, to communicate your heart from your word to us, your people that you would bless this study and continue to speak into our lives concerning these last days, these things that are going on, how we're to be giving ourselves to the things that matter and then divesting ourselves of things that don't. I pray over our marriages. I pray over our families. I pray over, Lord, our country. We ask in Jesus' name for you to be merciful, gracious, and pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Bless this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So Jesus begins, he says in verse 28, learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors, the second coming. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Note that, we note it every Sunday. So there are two interpretations among probably some other ones, two main ones of this parable. First one is that it's an incredible prophecy of the rebirth of the nation Israel. May 14, 1948, 75 years ago and counting, at least we think, Israel became a nation again. Against all odds, and still today, and really all the way, they've been fighting for their very existence. God promised to Israel the land, 
and through Israel a lineage that would bring the Lord. So these promises that God made to Abraham are still in place. God's promises always are. He doesn't change. In the Bible, Israel is symbolized by the fig tree. In Mark chapter 11, we looked at that, at that, that place where Jesus, the miracle of the withering fig tree, and it was the cursing, a picture of the cursing of Israel, a dramatic prophetic sign of God's impending judgment on Israel. Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, quote, the unproductive fig tree symbolized Israel's spiritual barrenness despite divine favor and the impressive outward appearance of their religion, unquote. Let me say that again because it looks like it's not up there. The unproductive fig tree symbolized Israel's spiritual barrenness despite divine favor and the impressive outward appearance of their religion, unquote. So it looked like they're doing great, but they weren't in God's eyes. So in Hosea chapter 9, I, I, this, this is, well, anyway, thank you, Jocko, for getting, let's give it up for Jocko, because this is a last-minute thing. <laughs> Hosea 9 says this, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor, and separated themselves to that shame, they became an abomination like the thing they loved. He continues in verse 16, Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. My God will cast them away because they did not obey him, and they shall be wanderers among the nations. So there are near and far fulfillment of these things, but they went into exile because they rejected God. Now it is also prophesied that Israel will be reconciled to their God, to Yahweh. They would realize what they did in rejecting and murdering their Messiah. They will turn to God in repentance and be restored to God by the mercies of God, all to the glory of God. That will be happening. Now, there are differences, and I want to, in a moment, I'm going to stop just to address some of the, the things that are on my heart as far as the prophetic word and these particular things. During the Great Tribulation period, Satan will be at one point confined to the earth. And knowing his time is short, he will bring a full-scale persecution to obliterate the Jewish nation, the Jews. Ruin God's promise in so doing. He's been trying that all the way along. He must destroy the Jews before they have a chance to plead for the Messiah's return. The persecutions of the Jews will intensify leading to the beginning points of the campaign of Armageddon during the time of the Great Tribulation. During the period of the persecution of the Jewish people, approximately two-thirds of the Jewish population of that day will be killed, and one-third will be left in the closing days, weeks, or months of the Tribulation. You find that in Zechariah 13. So the campaign of Armageddon is specifically organized by Satan for the purpose of annihilating once and for all the one-third remnant of the Jewish people still living. So when will these things be? What, this coming of the Son, the second coming of Jesus? I believe that the basis for the second coming of Jesus Christ will be Israel's national repentance, their reconciliation, and regeneration. There will be no second coming until these things happen. Israel as a nation repents in acknowledging their sins against God. 
culminating in the national sin of rejecting and murdering their Messiah. Israel as a nation then pleads with him to return with the words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus, Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 23. Israel as a nation, this to me is an incredible prophecy, a broken prophecy, not broken in means of fulfilling, but just a brokenness that comes to the nation Israel. They will look on him whom they pierced. In Zechariah, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. Then in Zechariah 13... Verse 1, in that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of, there it is again, Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. So Zechariah is telling us that the Israel as a nation will at one point receive Jesus as Messiah and be saved. We'll be talking about this on Wednesday night in a couple weeks, the nation Israel, Israel's place, Romans 9 through 11. Now, I believe that there are scriptural prerequisites for the second coming of Jesus. I prepared a PowerPoint Bible study. For the, it's, it wound up it's going to be for another slot because there was so much to it. So at some point in the near future, I'm hoping we'll get to this, but I want to just give you a little bit of, a, of what I've been just kind of putting together, this, this whole chronology of prophecy. So probably on a Wednesday night, we'll do it in what's... what's what in the world's going on, but I, in drawing from many different places, but mainly from material adapted from Arnold Fruchsbaum, Footsteps of the Messiah, a study of the sequence of prophetic events. It was also posted on Harvest Prophecy, which is Tim LaHaye and Thomas Ice. So there are two climactic events of the Great Tribulation, this judgment of God, two climactic events. Number one, the campaign of Armageddon, which has eight stages to it. Now, maybe that's new to you. I don't know. It was new to me 15 years ago when I first started looking these over. But uh, eight stages, and then the second coming of Jesus Messiah, two climactic events. Armageddon, the campaign of Armageddon, and the second coming of Jesus. Were you able to get that slide up there? Yeah, there you go. So here's what I put together that we're going to do another time. The campaign of Armageddon has eight stages. The gathering of the allies of the Antichrist, destruction of Jerusalem, the fall of Jeru the destruction of Babylon, the fall of Jerusalem, the armies of Antichrist at Basra, Israel's regeneration, then the second coming of Christ, end of fighting at Valley of Jehoshaphat, and the victory ascent upon the Mount of Olives. Now, many of us have this idea that Jesus, when he comes a second time, is going to come down to Mount of Olives. That's not the case. He's actually going to be in Edom, which is modern-day Jordan. He'll be coming from there to then go to the Mount of Olives when it will be split. So that's a whole other discussion, <laughs> a lot big discussion. But notice he says, learn this parable of the fig tree. So there are two interpretations. Number one, the rebirth of the nation Israel. But a second interpretation is it is simply an illustration of what's next to come. What's coming next? To be aware that there's a season that's happening in which these things will, will be taking place. So in Luke, interesting, he it, he tells us, then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. 
So Luke adds that little phrase, and all the trees, when they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near, seasonal. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. In Luke chapter 21, verse 32, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, now we looked at this last week, we'll continue to look at this as we look at these passages, because this is what Jesus said, take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. So Jesus is saying, there's a season, and there's a specific time. You don't know the specific time, but there's a season in which you need to understand that it's coming. It's going to be happening. So this parable illustrates the importance of knowing the season. Looking at the things that are going on and understand them as best as you possibly can by the help of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, what these things are that will be happening, that we need to be looking out for, that we need to be watching, we need to be taking heed, we need to be praying. So this whole thing, the season, being aware of what's going on, leading up to his parousia, his unveiling, his arrival, his presence. Maybe you've heard that word before, parousia. The point is this. Take heed, be watchful and prayerful. Take heed, be watchful and prayerful. Because the exact time is not known. Though we can, we should know the seasons. And Jesus said it will come upon the world suddenly. It's going to catch them. Not so us. Are you ready? In fact, I thought of titling this passage. Ready or not, here he comes. Verse 32, but of that day and hour, no one knows. It says, take heed, watch, you don't know, and we don't. And for us to say that we do, as some have, is foolishness. Jesus said, you don't know. I'm good with that, even though I'd like to know. Now, little uh, sidetrack here, but I think it's right on track. A considerable amount of data is given about this time, this time period in the scriptures. One of the greatest difficulties in studying eschatology, that word means last things or the final events of the world and humanity as we know it now, as we know historically, the greatest difficulty is placing these events in chronological sequence to try and clarify when these things will happen. In what order will they come? Now, here's what's on my heart in, both of the, in these cases, the prophetic word, both of these things. One is that, and we all wrestle with that. But secondly, and it's no less a difficulty, is the conflict that happens when godly Christian men and women disagree as to last things, disagree as to final events. How I wish it wasn't so. Just agree with me and we'll be good. No, I'm kidding. How I wish it wasn't so, but it is. I've said before, the spirit of prophecy is Jesus Christ. God could have let, he didn't do that. So when we get into these, these things, these details, which we're going to be on a few Sundays and Wednesday nights, it's a great difficulty. And I wish it wasn't so, but it is. You see, it challenges my willingness, and I hope yours as well. It challenges, I'll speak personally, my willingness to humble myself, to listen to my brother or sister, maybe even learn from my brother or sister 
But above all things, when it's all spoken of, non-essentials to love my brother and love my sisters. These are not things over which we should be dividing. In fact, I find I, I learn the most from those who disagree with me. My greatest growth comes from those who don't agree with me. And I believe that our growth in these kinds of exchanges is immeasurable, incalculable, and profitable for our own character maturity. And that's the reality of it. That's the challenge to it. And so I thought to take a good chunk of time this morning to read and take to heart the Apostle Paul's prayer and admonition that flows from his deep, deep love for the body of Christ. Paul's pleading with the body of Christ, praying for the body of Christ, that we, and let's just go, Ephesians says, he, he begins each Ephesians chapter three saying, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if indeed you heard the dispensation of the grace of God that was given to me. Paul operated out of grace. He was a Jew, a Jew of the Jew, a Hebrew, the Hebrew sent to the Gentiles by the grace of God. So he's laying sort of this, he's talking to them in Ephesians chapter three. If you've heard of the grace of God, the dispensation of the grace of God that was given to me for you, this grace. He said, I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Paul operated by grace. He said, I've been sent to the Gentiles. I'm operating out of this grace that God gave to me. I'm ministering out of the grace that God's given to me. There's this mystery he talks about in Ephesians of the fellowship that we have. So he says, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles, what? The unsearchable riches of Christ. He, had his, he was laser focused on the grace of God, the unsearchable riches of God, and he wanted to just pour them, minister them to the church, to God's people, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. So these mysteries that are being unfolded to Paul the apostle, he's communicating, and it's the church. It's God's people, and he loved them. And he says, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, listen to this, this is incredible, by the church, Greg's pointed this out several times, by the church to the principalities and powers, and we are a display. How we live and how we communicate and how we relate to one another and how we love God and how we worship God and how we testify to the gospel is this display to the principalities and power of God's grace and God's gospel. And so it's so critical, central. Jesus said, by this people will know you're my disciples. By the what? Love that you have for one another. The way that you treat each other, the way that you talk to each other, the way that you communicate with each other. So he says, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Are you not thankful for the access we have, the confidence we have? It's because of what Jesus did. These unsearchable riches of Christ through the gospel are ours to experience and to know and to grow in, to become more like Christ. So then he says this, Ephesians chapter 3, therefore I ask, that you do not lose heart at my tribulation. Now, we looked at tribulation last study. Do not, he says, 
lose heart at my tribulation because I'm doing this because I love God. I know what God gave to me. I know what God's called me to do. I know the grace of God. Don't you lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this reason, here it is, his prayer. For this reason, you can number the reason. For this reason, he says, I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How we need to bow our knees to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come humbly to him, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. We need this prayer over us every day. Strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to the love of Christ that passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I'm getting excited. <laughs> Pray it over me, Paul. Pray it over. Pray it over. This is the central place where we are energized by God himself. Strength of might in the inner man. Know the love of God, the width, length, depth, height, know the love of Christ that passes knowledge, filled with all the fullness of God. We need that, brothers and sisters, in these last days. We need this in just considering Jesus coming again, and am I ready? Will I be ready? Will I be operating out of these kinds of resources that God's given to us? To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him, say it again, now to him who is able. What's your need? Go back a couple verses. That's your need. Now to him who's able, what's your need? That's your need. To do exceedingly abundantly by all that we want. Ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let me continue if you don't mind. Chapter 4. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Here it is with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he goes, there's one body, one Lord, one faith. In verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith. Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit till we all come to the unity of the faith. There are two different things that are couplets. They're married and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. There are people out there after us. Jesus said, watch out, don't be deceived. This unity of the Spirit, endeavor, this unity of the faith to come to it, to grow into that, because there are people out there that are seeking to take us down in these last days. But he says there, but speaking the truth in love, may be able, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, being joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. May it be so, brothers and sisters, for every one of us. Humble ourselves to listen and to learn and to grow in our love for each other because the difficulties in this prophetic place, I've already experienced that as I started teaching it. 
there are different opinions. There are different things that go on. And it's not like I've been attacked at all, but there are just differences. And it gets difficult to sort those things out. He said, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that may impart grace to the hearers. When will these things be the second coming of Jesus? So whenever this time period is complete, or any time now and whenever, what should capture our attention? Time and time again, recapture me. That one day, in a moment of time, I will see Jesus face to face. And you who have put your faith in in him will also have that same experience. We will see him face to face. Does that move you? In a moment of time, we're going to see him face to face. It may be through physical death. It may be through a rapture. One day in the twinkling of an eye, we have put our faith in Jesus. We'll see him, our great God and Savior, face to face. What will that be like? Well, I think we've been given a little glimpse into what that will be like. So in the book of Revelation, if you don't know where that is, it's the last book in the Bible. A great closing book on all the glories that started gloriously in Genesis chapter 1. So if you don't know where that is, open your Bible up and go right all the way to the end. I'm going to put them up here as we go through this one chapter. The purpose of this book, Revelation, is to reveal events which will take place immediately before, during, and following the second coming of Jesus Christ. The future eternal state is revealed in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. The coming king, kingdom, the reigning, the second coming reign is in, is in chapters 19 and 20, in which the devil is done with. Praise the Lord. So the purpose of the book of Revelation is to complete the prophetic picture which began to be revealed in the Old Testament. Now, also included are things that Jesus predicted would happen, and we're looking at those now. Matthew 24 and 25, Luke 21, Mark chapter 13. So the themes in the book of Revelation, number one, the sovereignty of God, of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the satanic opposition to Jesus and his purposes for Israel and the church. Third, the inescapable judgment of God. And third, the eternal hope found only in the ultimate victory of Jesus over his enemies. Amen. Everyone say amen. Revelation. It has many verses that have practical application of these prophetic truths. Having knowledge of, living in anticipation of these things, the believer is comforted to know what will be, and in anticipation of these things finds great incentive 
to be living his or her life holy, W-H-O-L-Y, and holy, H-O-L-Y, committed to Jesus Christ. In other words, it is a call for perseverance. Brothers and sisters, are we persevering? Revelation is the book. At the same time, seeing that all these things will be coming, the unbelievers are warned of the judgment to come. Severe. It's a solemn warning to anyone and everyone who is unprepared to face those truths. I'd be remiss not to ask of this congregation, if you're here and you have not made your, your confession for your sin against God, you're not right with God and you know it. We all know that. It's innate. Conscience shouts it. You haven't made your peace with God. You don't know what will happen when you breathe that last breath. You don't know. You're unsure of that. May I say to you, John wrote that we may know that we have eternal life. It's not a guessing game. It's something God made very clear through the cross. So on the cross of Jesus Christ, he paid for the sins of the world. He paid for your sin against God. Paid the price fully. And he offers to you pardon. He offers to you the forgiveness of God. Not God didn't say, well, I like you a lot, so I love you, so I'm just going to forgive you. No, a just holy God must pay the punishment, pay the penalty for sin. And God did that on the cross. He took your sin, placed it on his son to forgive you of all of your sin against him and reconcile you to himself. That's the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loves you. He's provided for you. But he... he the relationship that you will have with God is a living relationship with the living God. Therefore, it, to be meaningful, it must be something you're choosing and God gives you the opportunity to choose to have a relationship with him or to choose not to. There's only two directions your life's going, either in relationship with God or away from God. And I, without shame, preach to you the gospel by which you are saved. You come to Christ. You come to Jesus. You bow before him as we'll see John doing. You, you confess you're a sinner. You say you're not right with him. And God says, well, you better go out and get some things a little more straightened out, and then we can talk. He says, you come unto me, all you who are laboring in heaven. I will give you rest. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the preaching of what Jesus accomplished for you on the cross, and your response to that is simply to receive from him the forgiveness he offers at no cost, in that sense to you, of great cost to him who died for your sin, the perfect lamb of God who gave his life a ransom for you. And, Jesus, and God just says, invite you. It's an invitation, come. Will you come today? Will you get right with God today? His desire is to have that relationship with you, meaningful, full, and rich. He knows you. You can't hide from him. He knows you. He knows everything about you. And it's in that condition that he died for your sin as he did mine and everyone else in this room. May the Lord help you to make that decision. In fact, let me pray a moment. Lord, I pray. We pray as believers in this room. We ask in Jesus' name for anyone hearing this word, even right now or maybe later, whatever, whoever is hearing this word, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The gospel is the, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. May you bring them to saving faith, believing in Jesus Christ, receiving you as, his, as their savior and walking justified, Fill with your spirit, walking in newness of life, walking in the spirit for th from this moment till you come. In Jesus' name, amen.
It's a call to repentance also. So what will that be like to see Jesus face to face, the second coming of Jesus? Will I be ready? The longer I last in this world, (laughs) the more my thought, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's just read the last sentence of the Bible. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. The more I see the evils that are going on and what's happening here, the only thing that we can cry out and know is going to be an assurance of God's work and God taking care of it is come quickly, Lord Jesus. You see, I'm taking heed as best as I can to exercise my senses to discern both good and evil. I'm really trying to do the best I can to do that. I'm watching as best I can to stay alert to the things that really matter and really see clearly the things that don't. I'm praying as best I can to hear God, to know his good and perfect and acceptable will and to do his will on earth as it is in heaven as best as I can. I'm doing the best I can to take heed, to watch and to pray. Are you? I believe you are. Someone said he can always humble a man by asking about his prayer life. And we, we all know that. We all know that we could be doing whatever and then put the marks on. God's not doing that. God's just saying, come, we got to talk. Let's talk about this. Let's talk. And pray always. Just continue fellowship with God is prayer. And then there are those times when we get together on Saturday morning, for example, our hour prayer, and we intercede, and as the Lord brings things up, we pray and we ask the Lord, and a church must be a house of prayer if it's going to be a church at all. And we're doing the best we can in all these things. And Jesus knows my every weakness. He knows my every failure. He knows my sin. And so he alone is my refuge. He alone is my high tower that I run to and I'm safe. He's the one who gives of his spirit to me without measure. The Holy Spirit. Will I be ready? Humanly speaking, I'm not altogether sure what that's going to look like. Except That the longer I walk with him, the more I know that only he can make me ready. That's why I want to stay close to him. The closer, the better. In C.S. Lewis' book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you have this little dialogue that went on where Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Captures it. Captures it. You see, in Revelation, it's the revelation that God gave to show his servants. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. This revelation is the word apocalypse. You've heard that word many times. 
the unveiling, the taking off of the cover, this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, not of John the apostle, of Jesus Christ. John is the human instrument through whom this revelation came. God the Father gave this revelation to God the Son to show his servants. Shortly take place. That means it's quick. When it starts, it's going to be quick. Once it begins, rapid fire. Signified means to make known by words, signs, and symbols, and the book of Revelation is filled with all of them, just to make it a little more difficult who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw, John the apostle saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this, it's a prophecy, and keep those things that are written in it for the time is near. Future things, that's what this is about. Seven times there are seven beatitudes, blessedness in the book of Revelation. First one, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Now you might understand it didn't say that. Just read it and hear it. And let the Lord do the blessing. This is not a book to be taken back by. It's a book to be blessed by. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things for the time, the period of time is near. Verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spiritual before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. The faithful witness, his incarnation. His coming in the flesh as the faithful witness to who God is. The firstborn from among the dead speaks of his resurrection. The ruler over the kings of the earth speaks of his return to glory, in glory. To him who loved us, here it is. To him who loved us. And washed us from our sins in his own blood. And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And everyone said, amen. Will I be ready? Will you be ready? The longer I walk with him, the more I know. Right here. He is making me ready. Wash me from my sins in his own blood. Made me a king and priest to his God and Father. That's what God is saying to every believer in this room. I know in whom I have believed. I'm persuaded he's able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. You know what I've committed to Jesus? My life. What have you committed? Your life. He loved us. In our sin and rebellion, he loved us. God demonstrates love in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us. Behold, he is coming with clouds. And every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, Even so, amen again. He's coming with the clouds. In Matthew chapter 24, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He's coming, coming on the clouds. I forget the words. 
And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of of heaven to the other. There's going to be a gathering. In Acts chapter 1, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, would you have loved to have seen that event? There's another event coming. We're going to see the opposite direction. They go, oh, where are you going? I'll be back. I'll be back. <laughs> and they, while they stood, as he's going up, men stood there in white apparel who said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing on Gazing up into heaven, this same Jesus, there's only one Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him going to heaven. He's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Some will be happy to see him, and some will be not so happy. There'll be nothing secret about Jesus' coming. No questions asked. Therefore, if I, if I say to you, Matthew 24, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner room, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man. You can't miss the lightning flashes. There they are. No question. Zechariah will pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Every eye will see him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Reflecting back to Zechariah, they'll mourn for him as one mourns for his own son when they recognize what they did. In Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega is the first and last letter of the, of the Greek alphabet. Beginning and end is the beginning and end of all things as we've known them. He is Lord. He is coming. I, John, both your brother and companion, in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the islands called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Cyrus, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. I, John, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy. John, the beloved apostle, a great apostle that we love, we look forward to, to talking to in the kingdom. Revered and esteemed by every believer of those days. The one who had walked and talked with Jesus, who had leaned on the very chest of Jesus. John, the pastor, the teacher, faithful shepherd of the people of God at the church in Ephesus and many other places. I, John. He's now banished to this island He's the last of the apostles. He's there alone by God's providence with God. He was banished to this 10 by 6 mile piece of broken, of, of barren volcanic rock. The old saint was forced to labor in the mines of the island that is called Patmos. What a way to end your life. It was an island used as a prison by the Romans. John was to the Roman government a criminal worthy of death. He's banished by the Roman emperor Diocletian who hated Christians, hated John, tried to kill him by plunging him into a vat of boiling oil, but God wasn't done with him yet. And let me say to you, you're indestructible until God is. 
Now, I'm not saying the essential oils will help you. <laughs> Why was he banished there? Why did he go through what he was going through? He tells us because he loved the word of God. And he loved the Lord Jesus Christ. No force and all the forces of hell gathered together can combat that love for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's our battle cry that defeats the enemies. How does John, this old banished saint, identify himself? Your brother. He's ready. Your brother. Not John the Apostle. Not John the Beloved. No titles, no capital letters, just John, your brother. And companioning the tribulation, which is the ordeal, the agony, the kingdom, which is the citizenship, and patience, the faithful endurance of Jesus Christ. No remorse. <laughs> no bitterness. No regrets. He didn't take any of those into the minds. He took Jesus. He's just resting in the grace, mercy, and peace of Jesus Christ such a time as this. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, down, a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. Listen, what's it like to meet Jesus? What's it going to be like to see him? John's seeing him. And he sees here his presence in the midst of the church. There are only one or two, there are only, if I know of one of, this is only one of two physical descriptions given by, about Jesus in the Bible. The other one's in Isaiah chapter 53. He shall, grow, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. When we see him, there is no beauty that we should be, he's just an ordinary guy. And here we now we have this description, this physical description in the midst of the seven lampstands, his presence among the church. And he's going to be speaking to the church in chapters 2 and 3. I almost wanted to go do a study on that. His presence in the church. One like the Son of Man, he is, he is God. That's who John's meeting. That's who John's turning to see. Clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. You know what that speaks of? Beautiful. His priesthood. He is our great high priest. We, read, we studied him in, in Hebrews. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass that refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. White like wool, the ancient of days. His authority is what it speaks of. None above him. His eyes like a flame and fire, nothing gets by him. Piercing. His feet were like fine brass. And you know, when you, when you, you read some stories where these, they fall down, they, they just know they're seen. All things are open and naked before the eyes of him who must give account. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet like fine brass. 
his tested stability in the midst of sin and all kinds of evil. Refined through that, humanly speaking. His voice is the sound of many waters. You've heard, we've been at waterfalls before. There's something about it. It's loud, but it's awesome, powerful, though it never physically. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance like the sun shining in its strength. He, he is the keeper with all authority and all power. He speaks the truth with he speaks truth in judgment. He shines with glory and majesty. What's it going to be like? What's it going to be like to see Jesus? I mean, if I was a hippie, I'd say it'd be far out. But that doesn't do anything to even get near to what it's going to be like when we individually stand in the presence of him who died for us, washed us from our sins, made us kings and priests to his God and Father, and we see his presence, we see his person, we see his glory, we're going to fall down just like John did before his feet. I look forward to that day. How about you? We read in Revelation in a couple of occasions where they fall down tens of thousands, thousands of thousands of angels and this multitude of people saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He's redeemed us to God by his blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And we are priests and kings to our God. And I'm going, man, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But oh, to fall before him now. Will I be ready? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Spurgeon said, better to be dead at his feet than alive anywhere else. And that is so true. Here is a man, John, overcome. (laughs) By the glory of the one who loved him. May his love overcome us as we bow before him who is and who was and who is to come. He laid his right on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am who you lives and was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I think he's saying, amen. Glad that's done. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. He let, do not be afraid. What's it going to be like? How's it going to be when I see him? The same hand that holds the seven stars speaks to John with a touch that takes away his fears. I am the first and last. I'm with you and will always be with you. Always have, always will be. Eternal God. I've always loved you. I am who lives and was dead. I I became a man to die on on a cross for your sins. I rose again that we might have this Meeting, all taken care of. Keys of Hades and of death. I've been given all authority over Satan, sin, death, and hell. The key for you. I'm the key for you. When will these things be? The second coming of Jesus. Let me wrap it up. Can I have the worship team come out? What will that be like to see Jesus face to face? Will I be ready? Will you be ready? The longer I last in this world, the more my thought is, come quickly, Lord Jesus. 
I'm taking heed as best I can to exercise my senses to discern both good and evil. I'm watching as best I can to stay alert to the things that really matter. I'm praying as best I can to hear from God his good and acceptable and perfect will of God and then to do his will on earth as it is in heaven. Will I be ready? Humanly speaking, I'm not altogether sure what that means or what that will look like, except that the longer I walk with him, the more I know that only he can make me ready. And that I'm his workmanship. That he's working in my life to will and do what pleases him. It's God doing that work. Will I be ready the longer I walk with him? The more I know he will make me ready. He is and will complete the work he's started in my life and yours as well. Brothers and sisters, by faith, you must give your heart in believing God for these kinds of things that are beyond anything you can do in and of yourself or anyone else can do for you. He will do it. Give your life back to him. Resurrender again to him. Pray to him. Fall at his feet. The longer I walk with him, the more I know my great need for him. I need him to touch my life when I'm down and broken or when I'm risen up and walking with him. In all my undoneness, all my unworthiness, the more I look forward to falling at his feet, <laughs> knowing his touch, and what joy, what strength, beyond anything this world could ever, 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 ever offer me. We went to the pastor's conference. We got back. It was fabulous. Encountering God was the title, but the subtitle, which became the theme, was brokenness. And we saw Raul Reese, been pastoring for a long time, on that pulpit, broken, weeping. In fact, he's had these seizure problems in his life came upon him. He was in Vietnam. He had a lot of, he's got a testimony. It's crazy. And he's talking about this and how God has so broken him through it in a very, very powerful way. As he's teaching and trying to finish the sermon, the message, he had a seizure. He couldn't finish. And so he's looking around and he has a great staff. They came out there standing next to him. Before they came, he started to make his way off and he was going the wrong direction. They came over and got him and the love displayed there, the support that what he received in his brokenness was just a little bit of a sliver of the massive amount of the grace and love of God that he's been experiencing because and through brokenness. Oh, how I need his touch. Oh, how you need his touch to raise you up fresh, new, and marching on with him as into battle until he comes when he will win the battle. Stan, let's worship together and I'll pray in closing us.